This episode, I'm joined once again by writer and occultist John Michael Greer. In this episode, we discuss his book, After Progress, Reason and Religion at the End of the Industrial Age. I'd also like to say Merry Christmas to all listeners and subscribers. I'd also like to say a huge thank you to everyone who has listened, followed and supported the podcast this year. And if you would like to support Omitics and keep it going indefinitely, then please find links in the description below. And if you'd like to join the community, please find links in the description below. I hope you all have a great Christmas and I'll see you in the new year. Enjoy. So, John Michael Greer. Thanks once again for joining us on Hermetics Podcast. Thank you very much for having me on. Uh, this episode, uh, which is going out on Christmas Day, so Merry Christmas uh, to everyone. Uh, mm-hmm. Merry we, Christmas to everybody. We are discussing your book, After Progress, Reason and Religion at the End of the Industrial Age, which I believe was published mm-hmm. 2015 by New Society Publishers. And is um, by, the, by the time this airs, the new edition from Founders House should be out. Ah, okay. So, very well-timed, very well-timed. Um, as people would imagine, this is a book about what what do we do in a world where we admit to what progress is and what reason and religion are uh, after this notion of progress uh, is sort of expanded upon. Um, of course, there's far more to it than that, and it has a Spleng- Spenglerian and Nietzschean undercurrent as well, which we'll get to. Um, but before we do so... Um, I guess much like our economics talk, because when we when when I sort of sculpted the questions for the economics talk, you know the clear ones sort of were there, which is you know what 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 do people think economics is and what actually is it? And so I think really to open up this this conversation, I'd ask the same too: what is progress commonly understood as, and what actually is progress? <laughs> Oh, you do want to get into the can of worms right away. Well, oh, I'll yeah. break out the can opener yeah. and away we go. No messing around. Um, okay, I want, I want to start. What, what do people think progress is? There are two things. Um, and, of course, they're, they're deeply connected. Uh, one of them is obvious, and everyone will, will tell you, know, to talk to the person on the street, you'll get this. Then there's the other thing, which nobody will admit to, but is even more important. The thing that people think progress is, is the basic law of human existence. Um, every generation, on average, has it better than every previous generation. Technology builds on technology. Um, economic development builds on economic development. We're all on our way toward a better future, because that's... That's the way the world works. That's the theory. Okay, what is behind this and what people will not typically talk about until you really use them about it is that progress is the post-Christian image of God. Um, basically, all of the metaphors of Christian of historic Christianity were taken over at the roughly when when Christian faith became a minority interest in, in Europe and most of the European diaspora. Um, most of the the attributes of God were picked up and plopped onto this abstraction called progress. Progress is it is um, it, it is omnipotent. It is omnibenevolent. It is unstoppable. It marches, you know, on onward progress, soldiers, you know, what have you. It it has it's it's the god that our culture worships. The only problem here is that, as Nietzsche pointed out of of its immediate predecessor, um, the god of progress is dead. <laughs> and 
<laughs> and it it takes you know it, it takes perhaps a madman showing up at the marketplace of looking for progress to really bring this home. Progress was a temporary feature caused more than anything else by, on the one hand, uh, the European conquest of most of the planet in the very short time, from about 1500 to about 1900. Um, over that 400-year period, um, European armies and navies swept outward across the planet, uh, not unlike the Mongol hordes, but on a larger scale, uh, plundered the place to the bare walls, and that produced a lot of what we now call progress. The rest was the result of doing a similar piratical raid on the Earth's stash of stored carbon with coal, oil, natural gas, giving us literally unimaginable amounts of, of incredibly cheap energy with which we could you know, do as much as we could figure out. Um, I mean, most of, most of what technology has been doing over the, over the last three centuries has been figuring out, okay, we have this energy, now what do we do with it? Those two factors produced an unparalleled boom. You know, and the, the reality of that has to be acknowledged. There were dramatic changes caused by, first of all, stripping the, rel the, the rest of the planet to the bare walls and shipping the wealth back to Europe and, and a few other countries in the European diaspora. And second, um, stripping the planet's carbon supply to the bare walls and burning it in the same places. And you know, that, those caused... Just, just unimaginable changes. If you take a little while to to look into how most people lived in, in let's say, in, in Great Britain, in 1500, mm -hmm. okay, um, you know, Henry the Seventh is on the throne. The Wars of the Roses have finally wound down. Um, most people are living in the vast majority of the population is living in little one or two room huts, basically, a wattle and daub. Um, houses and making their living by, you know, by field labor. <laughs> and the, the kind of thing we now think that, that a lot of people in the West now think of when they think of, say, Africa. That was England in 1500. Um, and, but of course, it didn't stay that way for long. Um, and there was, and, and the, the two factors that I've indicated, the conquest of the planet and the, the plundering of, of the of, of the fossil fuels was what took us from that state to the way people, you know, are living, were living in, in England in, say, 1900 or, or now. Um, there's a fantastic difference. The dream, the vision, the, the religious conviction behind this is that that's progress. That's what happens, and it's just going to go onward. It, things are going to get better and better until we all live like characters in a Star Trek rerun. <laughs> and that's a very powerful belief. It is a religious belief. You know, any, any ideology that claims to know where we came from and, and where we're going is ultimately religious in, in nature. And so that religious belief shapes the idea, shapes the thinking of everybody, or nearly everybody, who's part of the, of the modern industrial world. And the thought that it might not continue, that we might have simply seen one side of a bell-shaped curve, that we're already in the process, not merely of peaking, but of beginning to slide down the other side. That's not merely a challenging idea. It's not merely um, something difficult to think about. It's blasphemy. <laughs> it's apostasy from the god of progress. Uh, you know, that's, that's the thing that like devil worshippers think that. And that's the emotional tone you get 
when you challenge the great God progress and, and say with Nietzsche, maybe that God is dead. Maybe that God is pushing up daisies in the, in the graveyard of, of dead faiths. And um, especially since that does in fact seem to be the case these days, um, it gets incredibly hot passions going. People will get furiously angry or, you know, the several other things that people do when they don't want to admit that they're furiously angry. Mm-hmm. So do you, do you think that progress ever had a, a a temporal aim at all? Do you think there was ever a point where uh, within the sort of progressive system of a time they said this is actually what we're aiming for? Or do you think it's always been this very abstract uh, religious notion? Well, this, this, I don't think... Up until quite recently, certainly, nobody sat down and said, let's have some progress. <laughs> they didn't have the abstraction in place. It was simply, um, you know, James, there's James Watt going, hmm, you know, if I do this and this and tinker with that, I can make a much better steam engine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or it's, it's Wilbur and Orville Wright in their bicycle shop going, the, these figures are all wrong. I bet if we build a wind tunnel, we can figure out how to make a flying machine. And so it was very much this piece-by-piece thing, different people pursuing different things, and they'll get lumped together in retrospect as the great march of progress. But it was simply people with access to unusual amounts of resources, unusual amounts of wealth going, okay, what do we do now? And so that, that, and this thing is, this is the case of, in, with, with most human thought. We love to come up with our categories. We love to come up with the, these abstractions and, and then to act as though the abstractions are the realities. The abstractions are the things that matter and all these realities are just feeding into them and just expressing, you know, there's a kind of, kind of platonic thought hardwired into the human mind where we look for the ideas and then look to see them substantiated or instantiated in the in the world rather than looking at the world and realizing oh i'm creating a category out of these various disparate notions and and assigning that you know assigning to that some kind of emotional importance mm-hmm. so why do you see it as distinctly post-christian i mean you know of course we've spoken before about how pretty much every ideology has its own fall its own garden of eden its own mm-hmm. uh you know you know christian structure so to speak in mm-hmm. terms of in terms of allegory um how come you know these things didn't take the structures say from hinduism buddhism or druidry druidry or you know any anything well, else why was it christianity no, no, it probably could have been it probably could have been, but a, a lot of things in history are very much, this is just the way it happened to take place. If the Industrial Revolution had happened in China, we would probably have um, a vision of progress that was rooted in Confucian philosophy. If the Industrial Revolution had taken place in India, there would be some way to fit it into to Hindu philosophy. As it was, the Industrial Revolution was born in England. And so, and, and spread from there first to the United States and then through Europe generally. Um, it was not merely Christian, but Protestant. Um, there are some problems with, um, oh, I'm going to lose his name now, the Protestant, epic, the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism, Max Weber. Weber's theory that um, Protestant ideology became the foundation of capitalism. And you know, he, there's there's some, a few weak spots in his argument, but on the whole, it's a good one. You basically take this this Protestant idea of you have the right ideas, and God will reward you. It's not. It's about faith. It's not about works. It's not about ceremonies, as it you know 
participation in the sacraments as it is in Catholicism. It's, you know, you believe in these ideological statements. You believe in the truth of these, you know, these teachings, and God will bless you, and he won't just bless you in an abstract sense. That's the, the basic Puritan mentality. He'll bless you right here on earth. So, because the Industrial Revolution was founded, in, you know, gone underway in a Protestant country, because that's where the, the breakthroughs that made it possible for um, coal to be turned into, um, into energy, into, into motor energy, not merely heat, that's where those breaks took place. Um, that was where, um, the, you know, in Britain was, of course, the, um, the, the dominant global power. Um, through most of the period of the, of the fall of the Industrial Revolution, so its its way of its ways of thinking, its religious view, colored the entire structure of the of, of the myth of progress as it unfolded. Um, you know, we believe the right things, we know the truth. Therefore, um, progress will reward us by giving us lots of wealth and making it easiest, easier for for us to plunder you know three three or four more third world countries. Mm-hmm. So why do you, why do you think it is that you know we we there's something in our nature which makes us basically go oh there's oil here let's just dig it all up but we don't have a we even though we're apparently progressive we don't actually have a forethought for what we'll even oh. do with it. Oh the the thing, the thing is human human beings one of the things about human nature is that we tend to overestimate our own intelligence by a phenomenal degree. Human beings are simply not that smart. I mean. For brains, we have what a six-inch lump of of, of soggy jello, basically, <laughs> and you know, it's kind of squishy substance. It's six inches long. It's most of it's busy doing the same things that primate brains do, and we have a little bit set aside to um, to do things like like process concepts. We're simply not that smart, and so. Um, I mean, people started digging, start, started getting access to crude oil a long time ago, Greek fire, which the, the, uh, the flame weapon that was used to defend the Byzantine Empire for so long, um, that was based on, on um, oil seeds. They were taking oil out of seeps in the Black Sea region. Um, but when oil was discovered in, um, what was it, 1859, when the first oil well was, was drilled in the United States, um, the whole idea was you could get this stuff and make a cheap substitute for whale oil for your lamps, you know, kerosene, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole idea, they, they, didn't, they didn't think of it as an energy source. They didn't think that it would replace coal. Nothing would replace coal. It was king coal in those days. People talked about, you know, coal is this, the same kind of dominant position that, that petroleum has nowadays. But, hey, we can, dr- we can drill a well and we get this black goo and we can, we can extract something from it that, is, that, that will compete with whale oil for lamps. And that's what petroleum was, and it made enough money that people kept doing it. And of course, once you had this black goo coming up, all the chemists were going, "Oh, cool! I wonder what I can do with that." And so we start getting dyes and start getting various chemicals, and we get this this stuff called gasoline, which is really flammable. And of course, um, what was it? Benz, I think, was the guy who figured out how to how to make a gasoline engine, and then away it went. And it's an, so it's it, an absolute it, anomaly as well in terms of its energy density, right? Oh yeah. Yeah, well, petroleum generally, uh, pet- petroleum is fantastically energy dense because it's what happens when you get a lot of, of organic matter, bury it, um, drive it down deep into the planet where it gets processed with vast amounts of heat and pressure. All that heat and pressure concentrates it. 
and then you stick a you stick a well down in it and pump it up, and you have this you know the, the same amount of energy you might have in in an entire forest is compacted into this very modest amount of, of, of fluid. And so, yeah, I mean, people talk about, say, how we're going to replace all, all this gasoline with, with electricity. And I, I chuckle because to, have, to contain the same amount of energy as you have in a gallon of gasoline, ordinary car batteries, you need about one ton of them. Mm-hmm. It's just gasoline is phenomenal. All the petroleum products are phenomenally dense. Gasoline is, is among the densest in terms of its energy, the sheer amount of energy it contains. You can think about it this way. Um, if you, let's say, you know, look, look at how many, how many um, kilometers per liter or whatever the figure is, um, your car will go on gasoline. Mm-hmm. Now imagine yourself pushing that car that distance, the same distance that the liter of gasoline will do. That will give you, I'm used to thinking, of course, I'm American, I think in terms of miles per gallon, you 35, 35 miles per gallon is a, is, a decent, is a decent mileage. Can you imagine pushing a car for 35 miles? That's mm-hmm. in one gallon of gasoline. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, my favorite statistic with regards to the difference between energy densities is that if you, uh, if you wish to equate for all the petroleum usage in the UK with solar panels, they would have to cover 40% of the land. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? yeah. And, and, and apparently and, this is sustainable. And, you know, of course we haven't thought about, we haven't thought about all the habitats that would be destroyed, but of course they wouldn't be destroyed. It would just magically work as all things do. Of course. Well, the, the thing is all of it, since most people have never learned to think in, in, in numerical terms. This is, you know, I was mentioning humans aren't that smart. And so to actually think through how much energy is in that gasoline, how much solar energy would you need to convert into it with all the, the usual losses and so on, and how much, what raw materials would you need for those solar panels, and dot, dot, dot. We can take it on for a long time. Um, you can't do it. But nobody's willing to think about that because the great god progress will, you know, will, will, will look unkindly on you. You have to believe, that they have to believe, that the great god progress will bring us, if we waste one set of energy, the great god progress will bring us this marvelous new energy resource that will take care of us and allow us to go on to bigger and better wastage. <laughs> and because it's a religious belief, because it's based on faith, because it's rooted in, 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 in emotion, people cannot think around it. They're not able to grasp that maybe we've just had a joyride. We've spent the last 300 years going, whee, burning through the, contest, the contents of, of Earth's carbon stash. And when that's gone, it's gone. And we're on our way back to conditions as they were in 1500 or so. That's, that's just totally unthinkable for people. Again, they believe in progress. Progress, the, the omnipotent, the omniscient, the omnibenevolent force that will lead us all to a Star Trek future. Again, you're, you're trying, to, trying to tell people that, no, we have this marvelous resource we're using. We've almost used it up now, and there, when it's gone, there is no more. It's like trying to tell a medieval peasant that you know, the, the God and, and his saints and angels aren't in heaven anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if I was to ask you to put on your optimism hat and try mm-hmm. um, perhaps 
cater to those who are perhaps now in panic mode. What do you think, even if it is a, a possibility in, in in some sense, what do you think would actually take for the Western world, I guess, was really what we're talking about here, the Western world to be able to continue as it is, you know, what it considers normal at the moment. Is that ever going to be a possibility? I mean, even it's if not, we even if not, we had a complete systematic energy overhaul. It's not it's not it is not physically possible for us to do that. The energy resources are not there. Um the it's it's like it's it's as though you won the lottery and you've been spending uh you know um 100,000 pounds a year and then the money you realize the money's running down and you and the only, you know, the only job you can get is flipping burger, burgers at a burger joint <laughs> for, for, you know, for a very modest wage. No matter what, you are not going to be able to keep up that 100,000 pounds a year lifestyle. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what you do. You, you know, you can't do it. It's like, it's, it's like oh, you know, to use an, another metaphor, it's as though you've taken a plane up to 20,000 feet and... The door is pop- the door has been popped open, and you're going to say, "Okay, I want to step out of this thing and stay at twenty thousand feet. I want to walk over to those clouds over there." <clears throat> it's not going to happen. Now, <clears throat> if you're paying attention, if you were paying attention um, <clears throat> before the door opened, there's a thing called a parachute, mm-hmm. which might enable you to get to the ground in a much less traumatic fashion. And if you put on the parachute and you have, you know you make sure you know where the ripcord is and so on, you can step out of that plane and actually land in one piece. But you're not going to stay at twenty thousand feet. It doesn't matter how badly you want to. It doesn't matter how how enthusiastically your belief systems insist that in fact you can keep walking upwards, climbing from cloud to cloud until you finally reach the moon. It you know you can tell yourself that all you want to, but. When, it's, when the energy isn't there anymore, it's not there anymore. When there are no more hemispheres to plunder, um, you know, the world, is, the world is a sphere. It's not flat. And so, we've, you know, there was only so long that this, this business can continue. Mm-hmm. So the question is how we, how, we, how we wind it down. How do we deal with the aftermath of this age of gargantuan excess? Mm-hmm. And I mean, this, this, what's really happening is we're living through the death of God, right? As you mentioned, it's like telling, yeah. telling peasants from medieval times that, you know, he's not up there anymore. Or, um, mm-hmm. And on the back of that metaphor, it's like we're, we're sort of walking around the stinking corpse of a God, right? <laughs> How do you <laughs> Nietzsche Nietzsche put that into his famous metaphor? You know, do we not smell the stench of the of the decomposition of <laughs> God? <laughs> yes, go on. How how do you how do you understand the, the the death of God section from from well there's there's multiple sections throughout multiple books, but how do you understand that metaphor of Nietzsche's? Do you understand it in okay. the yeah, well, sorry, well right. Nietzsche, Nietzsche was talking about a very important historical reality. He, of course, he himself was an atheist. He didn't think that God had ever existed, but he was he he was raised in in a family of ministers. He understood Christianity very deeply. Um, he, unlike so many modern atheists, he understood what he was rejecting, and but he also noted that in his time there was this spreading disconnect throughout the intellectual life of Europe. You had 
all of these people who were arguing for philosophies and ethics and ideas of life that all depended on Christianity to, to make any kind of sense at all, especially in the moral field. And yet, none of the people who were doing this actually believed in the reality of, of the, the basic, basic teachings of Christian revelation. They did not believe that God existed. They did not believe that, that Christ rose from the dead or any of the rest of it. Um, and yet they were sort of going on, you know, going along in this state of pretense. And so the, the, the moral field is, of course, the one where he was most famous and um, not always made famous, not always by people who really understood what he was up to. He's pointing out that you can't just say, well, these things, here are these moral teachings and they are true and we are going to build nice, you know, new arguments explaining why they're true on rational grounds. You have to start by saying, how do we know these things are actually good? What is your justification for saying this is moral, this is not moral, and, and so on and so forth? Um, basically, all of European morality at that point depended ultimately on on the Christian idea that, that God, the creator of heaven and earth, had commanded human beings to live according to this set of laws. It, the whole idea of moral law, the whole idea of um, moral exhortation, the idea that you ought to walk up to somebody and say, you are behaving badly, you should stop and do the right thing. It was, it's based on, on, on you know, Christian preaching, ultimately. You can see this very clearly if you compare um, any work of, of European or American moral writing um, from, oh, well, any period after, after the establishment of Christianity, compare it to Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, generally considered to be one of the great works of ethical philosophy. Aristotle presents this entire image of morality where the word should never appears. It's never about you standing there telling someone else they're being bad and ought to stop. It's here is the way to live if you wish to develop greatness of soul. Mm-hmm. which is the, the goal that he has. It, it, it's all if-then. It's all, you know, here is a model for, for human excellence, for human moral excellence. And if this appeals to you, this is how you can go about achieving it. Mm-hmm. So it's worlds away from that thou shalt and thou shalt not that still dominates. Um, you know, think, think of the... Think of the political moralisms of our time, the various um, social justice types or their equivalents on the other side of the fence. They're always pointing figures at people going, you're being bad, you're being wrong. Uh, and, and, you know, and if you actually start poking it and saying, okay, what's your justification? How, on what basis is this wrong? On what basis is this bad or is this right or is this good? It ultimately comes down to um, a set of beliefs that make no sense unless you actually accept Christianity. And that's exactly what Nietzsche was talking about. If God is dead, if, 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 you know, to, to leave the metaphor, the metaphor behind, if Christian teachings are untrue, if they are factually inaccurate, then what's to come, you know, what kind of morality makes sense? Not a morality of finger-pointed, quite possibly a morality like the one Aristotle taught, um, the sort of virtue morality that uh, Alistair McIntyre wrote about in After Virtue, makes perfect sense 
in in a world in which the in which God is dead, a world in which the Christian revelation is no longer considered by most people to be self evidently true. But you actually have to think about that. You actually have to stop and recalibrate your entire moral world. And very few people in Nietzsche's time were willing to do that, of course. Not too many people are willing to do it now. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess one thing I'd say is that in terms of, you know, the political finger-wagging, you know, one side saying you should do this, the other side saying you should do that, um, I think a lot of that seems to depend on an, uh, a relativism as well, because the, uh, you know, the political postmodern modern current of the day, both sides wish to pro- you know, promote a sort of hedonistic relativism where, you know, well, if it's not hurting anyone, you should do this. But of course, mm-hmm. if you once you enter into a relativism without those, uh, uh, shall we say, not even Christian, but uh, divine mm-hmm. cornerstones, you know, something that actually has uh, an effect on your cause, uh, you know, mm-hmm. an effect that's going to matter at some other point in time. If you don't have those and you enter into relativism, then there's nothing stopping anyone else to say, well, this is all relative, so why should I do that anyway? Exactly, exactly. And so it's actually, a, it's a fake relativism. And you can see this as soon as they start wagging their fingers, because if you actually embrace a full, a full moral relativism with, with, with no bases at all, whether they're divine or otherwise, um, you have no justification for arguing for anything. Mm-hmm. And you can say, well, what's wrong with slavery? Then, you know, and anyone, th- there are lots of things that are wrong with slavery, but from a relativist, from a viewpoint of relativism, how can you justify claiming those are wrong? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, so what, you, what you typically have in, in the modern scene is a defensive shell of fake relativism. You know, you can't tell me that I'm wrong because uh, nothing, nothing is true. Overlying a body of dogmatic beliefs that are that have been stolen from Christianity in one form or another, hijacked and repurposed with the serial numbers filed off. Filed off. You have, you know, on on the left, for example, you have this focus on the notion of compassion, and however badly that's expressed in practice, that idea that compassion, mercy. Um, you know, taking care of those who of those who are vulnerable. Um, that that is a that that is an essential good. That that is something that everyone should do, and that if anyone violates that, they should have their, their finger wagged at them. Um, and but if you look, if you start poking at that at that that doctrinal belief of theirs, you find that it's sort of sitting on air. Mm-hmm. They believe it. They accept it. But they can't actually give you a good reason for it, because, again, it's borrowed from Christianity. And if they're not Christian, they can't do that. On, on the right hand, typically, it's liberty, That's which you know, ultimately rooted in the, the, the value of freedom of conscience and things like that. And it's the same thing. You do at least have some Christians over on the right who, who can justifiably say, well, my God said this, and therefore you ought to follow it. Which, you know, it has its problems as as a philosophical argument, but at least it has some basis. At least you can say, okay, here's the Bible. You know, here's, here, here are these teachings. I believe these things are true. Therefore, dot, dot, dot. On the left, so often it's just, well, it's right. It's true. Hmm. <laughs> I, f- I feel at this juncture I should probably tell you that I'm now a Catholic catchman. But, um, How are you? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. So. So. Yeah. So you see, from from within the, from within the viewpoint of the Catholic Church, um, it's all very straightforward. 
Um, mm-hmm. You know, God handed down this set of, you know, a general set of rules to Moses on Mount Sinai. Um, Jesus revealed a bunch of additional rules at this time. The, the, there's, you have this series of popes and so on. And, um, and so here's this body of information which comes from, from a source which Catholics consider authoritative. Mm-hmm. Um, if in, and, you know, and, and it makes sense. If, in fact, you do have a channel to the creator of heaven and earth, then, you know, it's like, it's like asking any other expert, except a, a, a rather more qualified one. But the difficulty, of course, is that most pe- that most people nowadays don't believe that. No, and even, even and, and also, I would argue that many of people who are even in the church, maybe not the Catholic Church, but there's probably some. But many people who are even in the church, are, mm-hmm. you know, it's like a, just an aesthetic, right? It's there, like you know, we all know this isn't really real, but we all know it's the best thing to do, right? Relativism mm-hmm. is entered into yeah. the church. Yeah, yeah. And this, yeah, I, I, if if you if you have been spared that in English Catholicism, I'm delighted to hear it I here think, in the United um, States. It's totally rampant. It's I think all over it's the place. difficult to say. I think um, the the Catholic Church, I think, has become almost far more decentralized than people realize. And uh, much like a driving mm-hmm. instructor, it, it probably differs church to church and priest to priest. It's okay. Well, that's that's a, that's a very good sign. That's um, one of the problems with centralization is that rot can spread very quickly, whereas a decentralized um, organization is going to have, you're going to have some very bad examples, but you have the opportunity for excellence. So that, that's good to hear. That's good to hear. But, um, but yeah, within, so, you know, with depending on your viewpoint and um, to, to kind of to kind of leap um, into into one of Spengler's things, this is one of the things that drives what he calls the second religiosity, the return to religion after this, the age of reason self-destructs. Because if you have no other basis to make moral sense of your life than traditional religious views, people are going to turn to the traditional religious views. Mm-hmm. It's that or, it's, you know, it's that or... Um, nihilism but for spengler that happens in the winter of a civilization though doesn't mm-hmm. it yeah so yeah it i mean it's, it's a sort of a a moment of respite but it's a moment of respite before much worse things are to come well but the thing is but it can be stretched out for a long ways one of the things that he tended not to get because he was he was like so many europeans of his time he was i think a little too focused on the classical world the apollonian culture as he called it that winter can extend for a very long time Mm-hmm. Um, in Egypt, in um, China, you have, you have 3,000 years. There are political ups and downs, and as there are in any other time, there are crises and catastrophes. But um, from, you know, from about what? About 300 BC to about 1911, you had a coherent religious structure in place in China that allowed people to understand their world and sort out ethical issues and, and live their lives. And the same thing was true in Egypt for a very long time until, until Christian persecution wiped it out. Um, you know, for, again, thousands of years, people, people knew, people had a framework that they could use to make sense of the world. And is it possible that Europe can, can reclaim that by reclaiming its, its historic Christianity? I don't know. It's, but it's something that I'm, I'm not at all surprised that more and more people are heading in that direction. Mm. I, I had not, I had not heard yet that you were, you were among them. But yeah, <laughs> you, you're, you're, you're kind of riding the wave of the future. 
Yeah, I imagine there's, there's, I think it, it seems to be a lot of people are heading that way. But then equally, I don't know. I think a lot of people like to say that, of course, you know, that sunk cost, you know, you head towards one thing and suddenly you're saying, oh, everyone's heading this way. Um, <laughs> but actually, if you look at it, I'll take that back because I look at the statistics and I think in 2016, something like 36% of the country in the UK identified as secular and now it's 40%, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's going up. And, and I imagine, well, you, you know, and if you look at the actual statistics of, practicing people mm-hmm. the, the, suddenly the statistic for how many people identify as say a catholic or orthodox suddenly drops massively if you're only counting those people who go once a week right oh yeah yeah well the thing is you can't be doing worse than the than the anglican church <laughs> what do they get two percent two percent i mean it's the established church they got what two percent of the population attending sunday services mm. uh, Something like that. I could say um, a lot about the Anglican Church, but I mean, I don't, you know, it wouldn't be fit for, <laughs> it wouldn't be fit for yeah. anyone's ears, I don't think. <laughs> I, you know, I'd struggle, I, I'll, I'll say one thing, I'll str- I struggle to add the word church to the end there. You know what well, I mean? The, yeah. the thing, this, this is the thing people, people miss. Here in the United States, we have this, this constant drumbeat of little groups who decide that, you know, uh, forget about our tradition of not having an established church, forget about our traditions of separation of church and state. We need to have a national church and blah, blah, blah. We've got, we've got a, a Protestant sa- faction on that calling themselves the Dominionists. We have a, a Catholic sect, um, a Catholic faction calling themselves Integralists. And all they have to do is look at England and realize where that leads, because the separation of church and state is there for the benefit of the churches. Okay, mm-hmm. once your church gets gets established, it very quickly becomes a government bureaucracy. Oh, the state, the, you know, the, the state the, wins. The state wins everything. Except the state always wins, and and the state doesn't win by by some kind of drastic thing. The state just starts applying a little mm-hmm. control to who gets appointed to which important position, and. and Pretty soon, there's no religion left. It's just a government bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if you want to destroy Christianity in a nation, um, establish the church. <laughs> and, and, and down it goes. And so, uh, it's, you know, it's precisely because that, because the United States has, has this, this um, fairly strict rule against um, Political support of religious of religious bodies that religion is so active here, so lively, and so it's still so you know doing interesting things. Um, I, I'm not at all surprised that you know people joining the Catholic Church. I know there's, there have been several in, influential people who've joined the Orthodox Church over in on both ends, both your both ends of the water, and precisely because they're not established, they can actually like do religious stuff. <laughs> um, but that is a question. Why? Why is it, and how is it? I guess more importantly, that progress—you know—that lovely abstract God manages to co-opt basically everything that it. You know, if if it's sort of like um, I don't know, like the Midas touch, right? As soon as it's mm-hmm. touched, it, it just slowly begins to infect, and you, we don't really notice it. And then eventually, ten, twenty, a hundred years down the line, you're dealing. You you have the thing still has the same name, but progress has mutated it and parasitically infected it so much, you actually don't have that thing at all, right? Which is mm-hmm. which was why I, I fell away from the Christian church for so long because what I was taught in school was Christianity was completely actually not Christianity. So when I went back to it recently, uh, you know, the last mm-hmm. couple of years or so, I went, oh, hang on. You know, when you, when you, you know, the easiest way to, for anyone to, to, to learn anything is go read it firsthand. You know, read it from, mm-hmm. 
read it from the mouth of the actual thing um, mm-hmm. yeah. because otherwise yeah. you're, you're, it's likely tainted with progress. Well, now the thing I, I would be cautious here about making progress an active force, making it mm-hmm. to, to reifying it in that sense, because the progress is a label. And it's a label that is put on things, usually retrospectively. We look back and say, here are these various events that all count as progress. But it's all a matter of winnowing down the historical record, getting rid of all the things that didn't work. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when the Concord was the next word in progress. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we still want to bring that. Um, we still want to bring that back. People still. Have oh, I'm sure because it'd be, well, the, one of one of the funny things about the myth of progress is that once something has been anointed as the next glorious step in progress, people can't let go of it. And so, yeah, supersonic transports. You got the you got the Concorde, which was technologically it was very successful. Um, it was an economic white elephant. It couldn't pay for itself. Mm-hmm. And no matter what you do, that's the case. The same thing is true of nuclear power. Um, nuclear power, again, you know, it was going to be the wave of the future. We were supposed to get electricity too cheap to meter, blah de blah blah You know, we, we all heard that stuff. I certainly heard it growing up. Now, in point of fact, the reason nuclear power is never going to be anything other than a, <clears throat> a luxury product for nations that want bombs is precisely that it, may, it doesn't make electricity too cheap to meter. It makes electricity too expensive to use. It costs way too much, much more than anything else. And, well, except for fusion power, which may not be practical, but we can get into that. But it's simply too expensive. And yet people can't let go of it. It's always, well, what about this kind of reactor? What about that kind of reactor? What about the molten sodium and the breeder, this and the thorium, that? Over and over again, trying to get the great God progress to cough up the, you know, the cheap, clean, safe energy that they were promised in the 1950s. And so, like the Concorde, you know, it doesn't make sense financially. It, 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 it will bankrupt any, any air, airline that, that um, relies on it. Um, who cares? It's progress. The ultimate case, the ultimate example of that is a flying car. Hmm. The fly, oh, the flying car. We get, do, do, you, do you happen to know when the first flying car was built? 19, I'd say just after the war. No, actually, no, 1917. 1917. Yeah. 1917. Um, Edward Curtis, one of our one of our American uh, aviation pioneers, built the first flying car. It looks like about a 1912 car with wing or with wings and a tail, yeah. um, and it worked. He could fly the thing. And more, they they were built. There were, I think, three or four um, prototypes built between the wars, and then, of course, right after there were several. And there's a new, there's a bunch of new ones now. You can make a flying car if you want. But because the engineering demands of a car and an airplane are are opposed to each other in important ways, what you will always get is a lousy car and a lousy airplane that costs so much that you could get a good car, a good airplane, and a yacht for the same price. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And (laughs) And yet it never matters because flying cars are stuck sideways in our collective imagination as as the you know that's what they drive in the future in the marvelous wonderful future of progress and so people can't let go of the fantasy 
I honestly think that a hundred years from now, when the um, when standards of living have dropped to what they were in 1850 or so, um, and uh, most people don't have cars at all, there will still be people convinced that they can build a flying car, mm-hmm. and indeed they can. But it will be a lousy car and a lousy airplane. This, there's a very interesting question from that, though. I mean, that a lot of um, contemporary philosophers are sort of puzzling with, uh, you know, in this idea of mm-hmm. the, the the slow death of the future, because ultimately, mm-hmm. if we want to look at uh, the future that's going to materialize for us. We've we've discussed this word on here before, hyperstition, mm-hmm. you know, this the fiction's becoming real. And if you want to know mm-hmm. what's going to come next in terms of consumer products or anything, just look at the next episode of Star Trek after, you know, iPhones are on Star Trek, right? They did, they weren't mm-hmm. exactly iPhones, but they looked alike it, right? Mm-hmm. And and uh, we're getting extremely close to the point, I think, you know, d- d- at least to the best of our abilities, where the utopian high tech futures that we were that were written about in Heinlein novels or Philip mm-hmm. K. Dick novels, etc. Mm-hmm. We're basically on a material basis. We're almost one to one with these with a few little uh, problematic caveats where things don't work as they should. But we're almost there. <laughs> but the problem, of course, is that our collective imagination hasn't continued the future. So we're in this sort of moment of stasis where we actually haven't got any fictions to become fact. And 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 in what sense do you do you I mean one do you agree with me that we're a bit we're a bit stuck there and two where do you see the future going in terms of um how it's going to appear? You know what's we, what's going to happen? We actually have an enormous amount of material on the future. It's just not onward and upward towards <laughs> you know toward the Star Trek future. Um we have the Hunger Games. Those were hugely popular because they presented a future that was a future of decline, of contraction, of political repression, of poverty and hunger. Um, that's the future that a lot of people see coming, and I don't think they're mistaken to do that. Okay. That's you know, it's it's as though you know we had been chugging back drinks at the party. And imagining wilder and wilder festivities of the party at a certain point, it sinks in that you're very, very drunk <laughs> and you are going to feel this in the morning. And so we're, we're basically sensing our own, our own approaching collective hangover. <laughs> and so there's a huge literature out there of people imagining futures um, that, that are actually quite possibly the sort of thing we're going to run into. Um, they're futures of decline and contraction and, and um, you know, disaster. And you, there's uh, Paolo Balogialti's stuff. Um, he does a very good job in there. Um, I've, I've written several pieces of deindustrial fiction. There's a magazine out there uh, called New Maps, which is entirely oriented toward science fiction stories set in futures of contraction, economic decline, and, and the like. And so that's the, the, the reason I think we're not seeing anybody building on the Philip K. Dick future, on the, on, on the, on the Heinlein future, what have you, is that I think at some level or another, most of us realize that there won't be anything building on that, anything going further in the same direction, um, because we've run that about as far as it can go. I guess I have one theory on the apocalyptic media, though, which I've written about before, which which um, I think, and it stays in this religious metaphor that we're using here. And I mm-hmm. think it's people watching um, apocalyptic media, you know, the end of the world, the collapse of society stuff now is akin to sort of, you know, the, the caricature of the, the you know, repressed christian finding a naughty magazine right they're looking at the the heretical <laughs> thing they shouldn't see but the uh-huh. pro- but uh-huh. the thing is that the thing that they're admitting in that moment when we watch apocalyptic media right is that progress has said 
if you consume all this, if you go on a cruise, if you take all these drugs, if you drink all this, if you just keep slamming out everything, you will be so free. You'll be the freest person ever. And we've found, of course, that actually the reality of that is nine to five work with four hour commute sat in a cubicle. And then you go home and look at a a box for the next eight hours of Mm -hmm. your life and then you go to bed, right? That's completely not Mm -hmm. freedom. And I think this Mm -hmm. is almost on par with once again Ted Kaczynski's argument of the fact that we actually don't have anything in progressive extremely material western society which gives us real meaning so when we look at Mm -hmm. apocalyptic media we think I wish that would happen so there would finally be some meaning in my life right because because the thing is at the end Uh, of the day the things that have to keep us alive shelter water food they are too easy you know Mm -hmm. and I I don't mean that to be crass towards people who are homeless or or whatever but people Mm -hmm. who are just the average person to, to mm-hmm. stay alive is incredibly not difficult, right? And to the point mm-hmm. where your life, you, you know, so when you look at them, you think, God, I wish it would collapse because at least then there would be some meaning in having to find food, you know, for instance. <laughs> and uh, that's my theory anyway, at least. Okay. Now, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to draw a distinction here that I think may be useful because I, I noticed that you, you went immediately from what I was saying to apocalyptic media. Now, that's not the only alternative to progress, you know. <laughs> For example, The Hunger Games is not apocalyptic at all. No, true, true. Exactly. And I was not talking about apocalypse. Because the apo- every religion has its anti-religion. For Christianity, there's Satanism and so on. You've got, you always have these, you know, for, for, for communism, which is a Christian heresy, ultimately, there's, An- there's Ayn Rand's objectivism. There's always these, some, some system that takes the ideology of the parent religion and stands it on its head, and I, which you can call the anti-religion. So the anti-religion of progress is apocalypse. In both, as with progress, there's this vision of you know we have unparalleled power, and we we can run the world, we can do anything, including destroy ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so, where the where the believer in progress holds that progress is good, the believer in apocalypse is progress is bad and it will kill us all. Mm-hmm. And so, there, there are just these exact mirror images, just as you know the. Okay, so- uh, just as the Satan, as the Satanist practice is a parody of the mass. So really, with this, with this media, it's it's if the media was realistically, um, you know, uh, displaying a collapse scenario, we probably wouldn't be interested, right? If it, if the media was a TV show about, oh, the fuel prices are now ten dollars a gallon, and you know, yeah. you know, we would be like, okay, this is really boring. This is just really miserable. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, we want those fireworks. We want, you know, the meteors plowing into the planet or the the vast pandemic wiping out everyone. We don't want um, the steady declines in public health. So you have to worry about dying from a tooth, you know, from from an infected uh, tooth. Um, And but in fact, the many of the works that I'm talking about, and there's there's a growing number of this material of of things in this field that are they're actually looking at okay, what does the world look like after progress? Not in terms of apocalypse, but over the long term, over Mm -hmm. a period of 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 gradual change of the same sort that's landed us where we are now, but in the other direction. Just out of interest, which books do you think, or which writers do you think get uh, realistically the closest for what you envision the future may look like? Oh, well, I do, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, excluding Um, yourself, excluding yourself. Well, no, the thing is, because I've written written several pieces in that that genre, Um, Stars Reach, one Mm -hmm. of my novels, Stars Reach, and then uh, Retrotopia is kind of a response to that. Um, 
I've always been very fond of Edgar Pangborn. You don't hear much about him anymore, but his novel Davy won, I think, the World Fantasy Award back in the day. And it is set about, uh, what, 400 years from now in four or five hundred years from now in the northeastern part of the United States. And it's, there has been a lot of contraction. It's in a dark age. But he does, he does a very vivid job. Um, he was rather anti-religious, um, like a lot of gay men in, in his time. That, that was a very common thing. But, um, but it's a very colorful story. Uh, let's see. Um, Marvin Kaye and Park Godwin wrote a, this amazing book called The Masters of Solitude, it's set about 2,000 years ago uh, from now on the uh, on the east coast of North America, and it's this it's this very fascinating interplay between competing cultures in in long you know long time post industrial America. So there, there's definitely stuff out there that that really kind of grasps the feeling of the whole thing. They get the idea that, no, history doesn't stop and it doesn't go zooming off from the stars. It peaks, it declines, and life goes on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so there's... Um, there's actually there's actually an enormous amount of stuff out there mm. that an enormous number of things that a lot of the, a lot of it was lumped in as post-apocalyptic yeah okay. because especially during the during the golden age of nuclear warfare when everyone expected to see mushroom clouds on a, on a daily basis of course that was the obvious way to handle the transition <laughs> and so there was an enormous amount of literature that was written on that but but very many of these things are set. Okay, yeah, there were some bombs. Um, another one that I that I this is set much further in the future. Paul Anderson, back in the days when scientists were saying we're heading into an ice age rather than you know the current global warming thing. Um, Paul Anderson wrote a fascinating book called The Winter of the World, and it's it's set in in basically in the Mississippi Valley during the next ice age, thousands of years from now. And it has very much this sense of, of different cultures, different, this long historical process. Our civilization is, is barely even remembered. Did it even exist? Nobody's really sure. Hmm. So there's a lot of fascinating stuff out there. And, and there are new things being written right now. So um, I would encourage... I would encourage you to, to, to note that the future, you know, the, the, these people who are saying, well, the, the, the end of the future, it's not the end of the future, it's the end of a particular future. It's the end of the future of progress. And since many, many people cannot conceive of a non-progress future, they cannot conceive of a future that where our civilization peaks and declines and grows senile and dies, and then new civilizations rise in its wake, as you know, as normally happens. Um, that's the, the those writers who are beginning to explore that, those thinkers who are beginning to explore that, to my mind, are giving us a look at at the future. So why, what is it inherently about reason and rationalism which makes them believe, you know, they've overcome basically everything. They've overcome cycles of history. They've overcome superstitions of religion. Mm-hmm. They've overcome, every, overcome everything which they say, look, that was all silly and now we finally made it right and we're super mm-hmm. rational. Well, the thing is, civilizations always do that during their ages of reason. Um, there's, I think there's something about this embrace of abstractions. When, because when an, an age of reason comes about, when people, when, when um, you end up with enough literacy and enough um, economic stability, you can set aside a, a class to 
you know, to begin a full-time scholarship, full-time thinking, full-time writing and reading and discussing and this kind of stuff. And so things move from the concrete realities of life as expressed in, in everyday life, but also in religious rituals. Think about how many, you know, within, within the faith where you're, where you're a catechumen, you have all of this focus on birth and death, on bread and wine, and all, you know, these very concrete realities. You move beyond that into an age of reason, and it's all about categories. It's all about abstractions. And because the first thing that happens when you do that is you notice things that don't work anymore, things that were established during the previous medieval period, and you can fix things. You can, you can understand things. There's, there's a certain amount of room for intellectual expansion, and people get drunk on it. People be, you know, you have, you have whether it's uh, the development of formal logic and geometry in, in the Greek age of reason, or whether it's the, um, the, the, the extraordinary development of moral philosophy in the Chinese age of reason, what have you. People come up with these, with these things, they become convinced, the doors are wide open, everything has changed. And in our case, it's more extreme than usual because, again, we had that, all that fossil fuel and we had the plunder of most of the planet flowing into Europe, making everyone feel very rich. And so the idea was that the past is over with and we have all these things. And then, of course, you run into one disaster after another caused by too much focus on abstractions, too much focus on, you know, here, here, this is what should work. Unfortunately, it doesn't. Mm. <laughs> and, um, and so finally, and so you end up with, um, you end up with this sort of collapse of reason, what, uh, what Giambattista Vico called the barbarism of reflection, where it becomes impossible to prove anything, impossible to know anything, uh, because you're mired in, in this endless wilderness of abstractions. And that's when people start returning to those concrete symbols, to the birth, the death, the bread and wine, and so on. And because to find an anchor on which they could they could figure out what's the justification for doing anything. And so to some extent, what we have in our current age of reason is simply a slightly extreme form of the usual drunkenness on abstraction that always seizes the human mind when it, you know, when it gets into territory, it was never evolved, that it was not evolved to handle. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the most sort of nefarious and almost upsetting uh, factors of both both the idea of progress and also of reason and rationalism, which are sort of you know it's they're all in mm-hmm. they're all in cahoots, is uh, the move from uh, and perhaps it isn't this this clear cut, but the move from a qualitative form of existence to a quantitative. Mm-hmm. You know the idea mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. you know as soon as you enter this idea of more or further or faster. Then, quanti- mm-hmm. then quantification is the entire point. How fast are we going? How far have we gone? You know, how much mm-hmm. will we have? And it is, it's no longer, there's no longer any emphasis or, or even discussion on, you know, quality, quality of experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and, mm-hmm. I, and that, I think, is probably where the heart of many modern problems and many problems in general lies, is the oh, inability yes. yeah. to just sit still and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, let's say, no, you, enamor yourself in quality. Yeah, you're you're unquestionably right there because, and that, that's that's especially a problem with our culture because, um, Western civilization, what what Spengler called Faustian civilization, focused on math, the development of mathematics, to to an extent that no previous civilization had ever done, and focused on that quantitative thing. When Galileo thought first thought of the idea that speed could be a quantity, not a quality. 
he really opened the door to modern science. And so the quant- quantification of everything, and of course that also was fed into by the development of first of mercantile and then of capital, of capitalist economics, where everything had was valued in money. You no longer had the gift economies, the household economies, the customary economies, the economies of service and, and of, you know feudal tenure. It all had to be cash. It all had to be in those quantitative terms. And so we're drunk on numbers, and. Uh, we manipulate numbers and increasingly the manipulations have less and less to do with anything in the real world, anything that people actually experience. But the numbers are all going the way we want. <laughs> you know? And so we end up with, well, I mean, you'll recall the joke from, from, 2000, from the 2008-2009 uh, real estate crash over here. Uh, what do you call an economist who makes a prediction? Oh, the answer is, of course, wrong. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> and I recall, was it, uh, was it Nassim um, Taleb, I think, who was saying, that, who, who, who described the situation where he was talking, I think it was him, who was talking to an audience of economists during the run-up to the crash and pointing out that this was an obvious speculative bubble. It had all the qualitative elements of a speculative bubble that was going to pop catastrophically. Mm-hmm. And they were looking at him like cows in a field. Mm-hmm. Just this sort of blank look. Uh, I, well, I'm amazed they didn't start mooing yeah. because it because all the numbers lined up, and mm-hmm. it had never occurred to them, as it never occurs to most people these days, to pay attention to qualitative measurements and to look at look at this curve and say, oh, that's what happened in 1929. I know how this story ends, as indeed it did. It's one I I know you don't you don't don't often watch films, but um I mean you may have read the book or seen the film, but The Big Short. There's a fantastic scene in The Big Short oh, I re- where um I read the book. I read the book. Yeah. There's a fantastic scene. I mean, it, it's brilliantly done in the in the in the film. I don't know. I can't mm. remember if it comes up in the book, but Michael Burry, you know, one of the few who actually who did see it coming and he did admit mm-hmm. you know to his his actual reason we could say um he goes into the bank and says look i want to short the housing market which of course is basically like saying i worship satan really in the in the religious exactly, yeah and and it, you know they they obviously sort it out because it's a sure thing for them that they're going to make billions of pounds from this guy and it suddenly <laughs> it cuts to them as he's leaving the room and obviously everyone in the room is cackling and i think that's a brilliant shot of progress is yeah. they are so yeah. utterly utterly sure of themselves exactly. that they can't they can't see what's in front of their faces they they can't see what's right there in front of their faces because they've got that 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 film of abstractions mm-hmm. and yeah <laughs> and yeah who came out on top in, the, in that transaction well no, no, no one no one really in the in the end yeah. well well they all get bailed out and then they all start again and they're basically the mm-hmm. same thing the same thing is actually repeating itself in the moment mm-hmm. um, with mm-hmm. with more sort of stops right but there you go um <laughs> one, one thing i guess perhaps to focus on you know especially with your your druidic background is that mm-hmm. in all these cycles you know where where there are ages of reason and mathematics comes out on top and quantity comes out on top and when there is when we're at this moment of the cycle it always seems that that nature is always taking the brunt of everything that's always nature is always forgotten mm-hmm. do you think there's a there's a a patterned reason for why this is oh, or do you oh, think yes. it differs differs uh you know cycle no, I to think- cycle uh, again, that's, there's that focus on abstraction. Um, 
if you apply, if you try to apply abstractions to the natural world, you can do it to a certain extent. Our our scientists have, have you know given it the old college try, no question. But you constantly have to deal with the fact that nature does not fit our categories. Um, I recall something in Robert Anton Wilson, one of one of Robert Anton Wilson's books, where he talks about seeing two botanists uh, standing there in a courtyard having an argument about a, a thing that was growing there. Was it a tree or was it a shrub? Hmm. And they were going on and on and on. Is it a tree? Is it a shrub? It's, it is what it is. And which category you apply to it doesn't actually matter that much. But abstractions, the, the world of abstractions for that reason doesn't fit nature very well. Because nature does, is not governed by, hum, by, by you know, con- categories convenient for the human mind. And so you always have this tendency to focus attention away from nature into the world of human ideas where it's all nicely cut and dried and it all fits our brains comfortably. So, so it's, it's, it's normal. And, of course, what inevitably happens is that nature is neglected, nature is abused, various things are piled on top of the natural world, and then the natural world yawns and stretches and rolls over, and down it all comes. <laughs> um, the, and it, how exactly it, comes, it goes falling down into bits is always a very interesting question, but, and it varies from place to place, whether we get the, the catastrophical soil erosion and, and um, spread, of, spread of malarial swamps that happen over much of the, Rome, the Roman world in the Mediterranean region, whether you have the desertification that swallowed so much of Mesopotamia, whether you have the mess of ecological consequences we're dealing with right now um, in, in modern industrial society. You know, when you neg- if, if you abuse the natural world, it's, you're going to get it back with interest. But that doesn't fit the world of abstractions where, you know, it's no, no, no. We're doing the right thing. All of our theories say that we hmm. can do this. Hmm. <laughs> and so the deeper you get into the theoretical, the deeper you get into the abstract, the more you pile one abstraction on top of another to make this glorious sandcastle, the, the grander it looks. And then the waves come, comes rolling in. Mm. But the numbers were right, so it doesn't make any but sense. the numbers were right, exactly. <laughs> Dear. So how can one... And of course, and, Sorry, go And ahead. of course, the, the, fact that, the fact that the numbers increasingly are falsified, and this is something you'll see in, in every declining civilization, the great modern, the great recent example, of course, is um, the Afghan National Army. It turns out, in retrospect, that all those th- tens of thousands of soldiers—the vast number, the vast majority of them—never existed. People were just reporting they'd recruited soldiers and getting money from the U.S. occupation forces. Uh, you know, the numbers were all right. There was just no reality on the ground. That's universal in a decline, in, in, in a fading age of reason. That everyone's focusing on getting the numbers and nobody's paying attention on what's really happening in the world. So go on. Well, I was, I was going to I was going to ask the question because I've always emphasised to people, look, you know, when no one's really in a position, uh, you know, it, it's been emphasised by many uh, contempt, good, great contemporary political theorists who I think are, are very close to to being correct that, you know, there there really isn't any such thing as a as a president. They can't just make decisions. There's no such th- thing as this, right? And and it, if, going from that, you know, these people think, well, what can we do about the world? And I sort of want to say, well, don't don't put that weight on your shoulders because it's completely pointless. But what you can do is try at least to begin untangle the internal knots which have been taught, mm-hmm. which will make mm-hmm. your life more miserable if you 
continue to believe mm-hmm. them as we go forward. So mm-hmm. I would I would I would ask you that how can one begin to untangle the, okay. the absolutely embedded knot of progress which has been okay. constantly woven since the day they were born. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and here here again because it's a religious belief most people will not do it. Most people will cling to that no matter how drastic the disconfirmation becomes. Um it but Every so often people, you know, you get people who will wake up and say, I belong to a false religion. (laughs) The the faith that I have been taught is not true. The great God progress is not in his heaven. We are not headed for a Star Trek future. And, And then we, you know, but for the people who've actually reached that point or are willing to consider reaching that point, those who have begun to doubt the secular faith in progress and have started to say, okay, what if this is a crock of crap? What if, it, well, since we're on, since we're, we are Bridget listeners, what if this is complete bollocks? <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, then the first thing to, I, I would, I would definitely encourage spending some time reading about, uh, reading older books, by the way, about people, um, it, how people lived in pre-modern times and try to imagine yourself in that setting. N- now, Older books, not the current ones, because all the current ones, or many, many of the current ones, are focused on making you fee- making you think about how much better it is now that you, you know, there's there's a whole literature out there intended to make you think that life in you know in Elizabethan times, let's say, was just horribly miserable, and how could you blah blah blah, you know, people lived quite comfortably in those days, mm-hmm. and start thinking, and oh, one other thing. Um, the most useful thing you can do to break yourself out of the trance of progress is to choose a technology and stop using it. It could be anything. It could be something you use a lot. It could be something you use a little. But get rid of a cutting-edge modern technology and, and either just do without it if you find you don't miss it or replace it with something that people used 50 years ago or 100 years ago. Could you give, could you give no, a, a, an example? Yeah, ditch your, ditch your ebook and start reading books again. Um, get rid of your television and discover that all of a sudden you have four to six more hours a day to do anything you want to. <laughs> um, you know, um, instead, learn how to bake bread. Not in a bread machine, please. It's much easier to do it by hand. <laughs> there are simple recipes. That, now, you have, you have to, there is a, again, here there's a whole, liter, there are whole literatures in the plural designed to convince you that all these things are really, really horribly difficult. Half the cookbooks on the market are there to, to send you down to the, you know, uh, to, the local, to the local shop to get, to get takeout <laughs> because they make everything so horribly difficult and complex. Bread is especially, bread is the simplest thing in the world. You can do it with about 15 minutes of actual work. Um, and people did constantly for thousands of years. Once you have the experience of realizing that you don't actually need these technological trinkets, that the, gim- the gizmos and the gimmicks are, are luxuries, not necessities, it's very easy to start looking at the world of progress and the, the mythology of progress with a baleful eye and say, this is crap. I don't need these things. I don't, you know, the latest, hottest, niftiest, wowiest technology is just going to waste my time and empty my pocketbook. Mm. Because normally that's the case. 
Okay, well, maybe maybe I could bring in one iteration, which you know has, has been sure. in, has been in the the fictions now for a long time, and it finally, you know, it's, and it's been around a long time, but it's finally mm-hmm. finally really taking root. Um, and I I I'm talking of virtual reality now. I think mm-hmm. you know virtual reality had uh, its heyday in the eighties, and then mm-hmm. it sort of came back in the early two thousands, and it was mm-hmm. almost good enough. And now finally Zuckerberg has. You know, said, "Look, we're finally going to make the big thing, which is really basing basing itself off Neil Stevenson's novel. Um, you know, the metaverse, yeah. which was in Neil Stevenson's novel. Now, my worry mm-hmm. originally, when it was just a hedonistic, we'll go on there and we'll play some games and have some fun. I didn't think much mm-hmm. of it, but I'm I'm generally, uh, you know, I'm I genuinely think this time it's going to be bigger for the sake for the fact of." They're going to build an uh, an entire economy within there, and of course, mm-hmm. the depressing reality of that is that the actual the actual will finally take a real hard knock in the sense that people's lives will now quite literally mostly be not in the real world. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I don't know where you stand on. Do you think VR is just going to be once again another technical trinket which will die a die a slow miserable? I, I don't. I don't know. My my working guess is that this is going to be like those those. Um, the glasses that everyone was going to be wearing. <laughs> Do you remember those? I, uh, uh, I forget who it was. Google glasses, I think. Yeah, the Google glasses. Mm-hmm. It's going to. It's um, or, or some of Microsoft's less inspired creations. Bob comes to mind. Um, <clears throat> you've got all of these. The, typically, what happens is that the tech geeks decide, "Ooh, people will really like this." Without ever actually checking it with the people, and yeah, you know they may they they may get a certain number of people who bail into it. Didn't second, I mean, is Second Life still going? Yes, yeah, it's, it's still going. Yeah, I think there's it's people still, still going, making yeah. a living on it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so my guess is they'll find a niche, especially among people you know who want who who want that flight from reality. Um, I doubt it's going to be especially impressive, but we'll see. Um, now, my hope, you see, is that um, this is this is speaking of science fiction novels. My hope is that more, you know, the people who are into progress and into technology, into all these exciting new futures, will like spend all of their time in the metaverse. That would be nice, wouldn't it? And just go away and leave the rest of us alone. And they can they can set up their own governments in the metaverse, and they can pass laws in the metaverse, and they can they they can um, march and and get again and scream at other people and do all this stuff in the metaverse. And yeah, we'll just leave them there, and the rest of us can go out and enjoy a sunny day in the park. Oh, excuse me. Uh, of course, we have Richard's listeners. A rainy day in the park. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Hmm. That yeah, I mean that that it is there is a possibility that it just end up because then your material needs become far less. If the virtual eventually takes over the actual, then why would you have more than a room in the real life? Exactly, exactly. So you just got, you've got these people sitting there, you know, sitting there, you know, with the, their their helmets on and there are these these gloves on their hands or what have you, and you know, going through going through these these sort of living living the simulated life and yeah they, you know, let, let them let them have if that's what they want as long as you know the resources are available to maintain their them in their daydreams that's fine it's a it's an electronic drug and mm-hmm. as with most drugs i i think the best thing to do is if you know let don't worry about it if people are going to be addicted to them let them be addicts yeah okay well i think that's fair okay well we seem to have covered progress very well. 
We've basically, in the space of an hour and ten, determined that great saying, there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun. Which is why, yeah. quali- which is why quality is so important, right? Exactly. Because it's exactly. the quality that you draw from the thing which has always been around, mm-hmm. not the mm-hmm. amount of it. Well, and, and the thing to keep in mind is there may be nothing new under the sun, but none of us actually lasts that long on this planet. You know, we only have a certain lifespan. And so it, can, it doesn't have to be new. It can be new to us. And you know, each each morning, each each walk in the park, each um, you know um, religious ceremony of your of your preference, um, that can be that can be for you a wholly new thing because you know you weren't there not that many years ago, and you won't be there not many years from not that many years from now. So enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, enjoy it. So I always enjoy asking this: what, what's in uh, what's in store for us from yourself? Oh boy, I have been, this has been the, the, the night of the living page proofs, or the, the, the couple of weeks of the living page proofs, page proofs and indexes, I've been doing a lot of that. Um, I have, I have a, a flurry of books that were delayed for a while, and they are all piling out now. Um, early, next, or early next year, actually, I will have a book called um, The Twilight of Pluto. Discussing, you know, we, we, we all heard about when Pluto was downgraded to the status of dwarf planet and so on. Nobody yet seems to have dealt with the astrological implications. And so I want to talk about what has, what has happened historically when planets are discovered, when they are downgraded. Because it's happened before that something was thought to be a planet and then was downgraded a series. And wasn't, wasn't uh, all the astrological time frames realized to be changed recently as well? Well, it depends on how you draw. Oh, is that, is that, is that different, differing between like Hellenistic and... Oh, very much so, oh, okay. yes. Okay. Yeah, certainly the, the, the cla- classic tropical astrology, which I use, has not changed a bit. Oh, okay. But whether Pluto counts as a planet or as a more minor body, that's, that's an interesting matter. Um, and so, so I've, I'm talking about that and, and making some predictions on the basis of what has happened in the past when planets have been discovered and then downgraded or found to be non-existent, as in the case of Vulcan, for example. Um, so that's, that, that's my first, that's my first astrological publication, won't be my last. Um, let's see, other than that, what do we have? I have um, the, the, complete, the, the new edition of my Sacred Geometry Oracle will finally be out. That was delayed by paper shortages. They had to find a printer in Malta. <laughs> to, which I thought was pretty cool because Malta has a lot of megalithic sites with some really cool sacred geometry. But so the sacred geometry oracle is a deck of 33 cards based on symbols from, symbolism from sacred geometry. Um, it was published once quite some years ago by a publisher who shall remain nameless who did a miserably bad job. Very ugly cards. And fortunately I got the rights back and now um, it's going to come out in, in, in a much cleaner and, and more pleasant form. Um, there is a book titled The Way of the Golden Section, which is the first of several volumes of a, a system of occult, occult practice, of spiritual practice, based on um, the Sacred Geometry Oracle. And it's one that I have designed so it can be used by people of many different religions, including the Catholic Church, for example. Now, I know there are the Catholic authorities may not agree with that, but you know each of us makes our own decisions. So let's see, there are those. Um, I've got a novel coming out in the near future. I don't have a timeline for that yet, but the title is Journey Star. It is a sequel to my first novel, The Fires of Shalsha. Um, it is one of the, the, that will mean my, my second and probably last ever work of space opera because it does involve spaceships and, and a, a colony orbiting a different star. 
Okay. You just want to move away from st- space opera to not get pulled into well, the, the sort the, of the, musky and orbit. Yeah, the, the, the whole the whole space opera thing. We're not going to the stars. Not Do you now. believe we have? Just out of interest. No, I I don't think we have. I don't think we ever will. Um, there are very good reasons rooted in energetic limits why interstellar travel is, is probably impossible. And in fact, um, the easiest solution of Fermi's paradox is that you can't do it. Mm-hmm. You can't get enough could, energy. Could I, could I push you on, you know, I, obviously I'm sure you've been asked this millions of times then after this. What, what, was, <laughs> the, what was the moon landing? No, interstellar, interstellar, not interplanetary. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, you can't get from one star to another. You can certain. I mean, the, the thing the thing to keep in mind: the moon landing, the distance between the Earth and the moon in cosmic scales is as thin as a hair. Mm-hmm. And it took the United States at the peak of the biggest economic boom in human history to yeah. gather together yeah. the resources to do it. Okay, and we managed it. Yeah. You know, it's it's three days away. Mars is nine months. That's that's a that's a big leap of energy. Exactly, and of course, the nearest star is tens of thousands of years at the same speed. They'll think so, of something. Oh yes, that, now that's that <laughs> utterance means exact. That that utterance is to the religion of progress. I mean, in you know, it's a sacrament. Um, it's a sacrament. It's, yeah, exactly. It's exactly the equivalent of, of of you know the Our Father in Catholicism. <laughs> it's a basic act of faith. It's the or it's more like the like like the Nicene Creed. You know, I believe in progress, Almighty Creator of all, key, uh, you know, of all neat technological gizmos, <clears throat> and so on. I don't. But since since we're not going to the stars, um, I had not really quite grasped that when I first wrote the the fires of Shalsha a good many years ago, and um, since the book needed a sequel, and it was I'd I'd already set this in a, a colony world around uh, around Epsilon Eridani, I kind of needed to follow through on that. I did I did take some time to put some thought into what space travel actually like interstellar travel would actually demand if it were possible. There's some, mm. some hand waving to make it possible, but it's certainly not the kind of thing you expect from Star Trek. Okay, okay. Well, I think we've uh, covered a lot of bases. Of course, you're still writing at echosophia.net. Oh, yeah. Um, so head still, on uh, Echo, echosophia.net. Um, mm. Joe Bob says check it out. And, <laughs> um, yeah, John Michael Gray, thanks very much. Thank you for having me on again.